I wonder this morning what your thoughts are regarding the state of the church today. Are you encouraged or are you discouraged? Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Hopeful or despairing? It's an awfully broad question. Maybe if I narrowed it down a little bit, that would be helpful. How about our church? How about Trinity Church, Orangeburg, 29118? Are our best days behind us? Or are they yet to come? I hear from some of you from time to time, you're concerned. You love your church. You've been here a long time. And we sure are a lot smaller now than we once were. Truth be told, that seems to be a common case with most of the churches in our area. Not in a growing area demographically, in a culture that seems less and less interested in being a part of a church. So that's another level that we could look at. We could look at the state of the church broadly and, and, and more generally, or we could even go in the opposite direction. Instead of bigger and, and more broad, we could talk about the state of the church in your life and in your family. Or are you satisfied with what you see there? Are you encouraged with what you see there, with, with your own progress as a disciple of the Lord Jesus? The progress of, of your spouse or of your children? I know many of you have, have grown children. They were, they were raised in the church, but they're not there now. I, I ask you to think about these things because they are related to our text today. We're getting back into Genesis. And the first recipients of this book, God's chosen people, Israel, They had similar questions to the ones that I just asked you about. And perhaps some similar thoughts in response. And Moses wrote the book that he did, having these questions and these responses in mind. And he wanted to do something for God's people bigger than just give them a history lesson. He was doing something more. Now we're going to pick up where we left off. So I'm sure all of you remember exactly where that was. To the chapter and the verse. We actually finished chapter 23. Abraham had just buried his wife, Sarah. And in that process, he became a property owner there in the promised land of Canaan. It was an albeit small parcel but an important step and foreshadowing nonetheless of a much greater possession of the land that would come. And that's an important piece, you will remember, of the covenant that God made with Abraham. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to give you this land to possess. 
That's an important part of the promise, at least now partially fulfilled. But the next part of the promise, I'm going to give you descendants that outnumber the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the shore. Well, when we finished our time in Genesis before, it was indeed quite possible to number Abraham's descendants. One. And so this is where we pick up. And we pick up this morning with the longest story in all of Genesis. 67 verses. It's too long, at least for me, to put into a single sermon. Which is a shame because it's one story, right? It's it's one unit. It would be nice to treat it as one chunk, but I am not feeding you lunch today, so we're going to split it up. Today, just the first 28 verses. Keep that in mind as you decide if you are able to stand for the reading of God's Word, and do so if you are able, please. Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 through 28. Now Abraham was old. We've heard that before. Well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say... Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one to whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, 
please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. May the Lord bless the preaching of his inspired and errant, infallible and authoritative word. Let's pray. Father, it's a long story. It's a beautiful story of your faithfulness, of your provision. Would you sear those things about yourself deeply into our hearts and our minds this morning? especially in the most important and dramatic way that you've ever been faithful to us or ever met our need. We ask for your help in these things, and we expect it. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Please be seated. So what should we do with this, the longest story in the book of Genesis? Moses must have thought it was important to devote so much real estate to it. What are you and I going to take from it? Some good examples to follow, maybe. Some good characters to imitate. Is is this a good lesson about how to seek the Lord's will in an important matter? We've got to be careful there. Because not everything described in Scripture is prescribed for us to follow. No, we're not going to do that. And I know that you want to be a better student of the Scriptures than that anyway. So our first and our primary goal with this text, just like it is for all the texts that we come to, is going to be to see how it fits into the one great story that God is telling from start to finish. That how the God of the universe has called the people to himself, and he is in the process of rescuing and redeeming them after their great rebellion, and he's doing so at great cost to himself. And so as we look at this small part of that great story, we're going to see how that plugs in. There are going to be lessons to be learned along the way, but they're not going to be me-focused lessons. You and I are not at the center of this story. He is. 
And so the primary thing is not for me to find out what I'm supposed to do or you to find out what you are supposed to do, but to find out what God has done for me and for you. And the places where we do learn about ourselves, it's almost always about how desperately we need to be rescued. And once again, about how it is God who's doing the rescuing. So those are the things that I want to try to pause and point out along the way as we get into this story. Abraham is rightfully concerned. He knows the descendant count is holding steadily at one And he also knows that his days on earth are winding down. And his now 40-year-old son hasn't done much in the start a family and have offspring category. So Abraham feels the responsibility, the impetus, if you will, to get things going. To arrange a marriage for his son. But not just any old marriage will do. And he's too old to do the arranging himself, so he recruits his number one servant in charge of everything. First requirement for my future daughter-in-law, she must not be a local girl. She cannot be a Canaanite. Now, here's the first thing I'll point out. This is just something encouraging. Consider for a second Abraham's growth. His maturing. Old Abraham would have seen this as a real opportunity. Perhaps a golden opportunity. Say, hmm, I need a wife for my son. How about one of these local Canaanite girls? How about a a wealthy Canaanite? How about about a, a wealthy Canaanite girl whose family has lots of land? Political influence? See, this could really fast-track the whole you're going to possess the land thing. I could really help God out and get this show on the road. Old Abraham would have been all over that. He was a schemer. He was shady. We've seen that. But that's old Abraham. That's not changed by the power of grace, Abraham who can now see that that would be a terrible idea. He knows that the land has been promised and that part of that promise means that the ones currently possessing the land will be um, dispossessed of the land. No, his, his daughter-in-law can't be a local girl. So he, he wants the servant to go back home, find a distant relative and of course, this Canaanite, uh, this requirement of not marrying Canaanites, that will later get codified in the law and repeated over and over and over again. Promise me you won't let that happen, Abraham tells his servant. And the servant promises in an uncomfortably personal way does he make his promise. I would prefer just a pinky promise, actually, but, uh, you know. In the ancient Near East, I guess you do what they do in the ancient Near East. But already the servant sees the difficulty in what he's being asked to do. 
how seemingly impossible this mission is that he's being sent on. And so he raises his first uh, potential problem. Uh, What if she's not willing to come all this way back? And he proposes a solution. If that happens, I'll just grab Isaac and we'll go and he can propose to her in person. And Abraham says, absolutely not. That's a better translation in verse 6 of where we have see to it. Right? Uh, the New American Standard gets a little closer. It says, beware. But this is like a shockingly bad idea to Abraham. It's a non-starter. Don't you dare. He repeats it again in verse 8. Whatever you do, do not take him back there. And this again, I think, is more growth on Abraham's part. Right? His, his servant's suggestion is good common sense. But Abraham feels like that would be disobeying God to leave the land he's been brought to without express written instruction, permission. See, he's probably very much concerned about Isaac staying once he got there. Settling down, forgetting all about the promise that's here. Right? And, and I think that's Justif- a justifiable concern. Think about all the, the pe- God's people who went to Babylon in exile. All right, you're free. You can go back now. And very few of them came back. Inertia is a strong pull once you're settled down somewhere. I think Abraham's concern is right. And in all of his insisting, no, it's got to be this way. I think the most important aspect of Abraham's growth that we see is is in his trusting the Lord. and, And not just trusting the Lord, but expecting him to show up. And to provide what is being sought here. Uh, Old Abraham would have been very much about the common sense solutions for difficult situations. But look what he does here in verse 7. He says, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. See, Abraham's beginning to get it. He's looking back and he's saying, okay, uh, faithful, uh, faithful there, faithful there, yep. Mm-hmm. And he's beginning to extrapolate, right? That's when you take a pattern or you take something from the past and you begin to project it onto the future and you say, faithful, 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 uh, guess he's going to be faithful here and I guess he's going to be faithful there too. He even guesses that there will be an angel involved. Now, is that just random? Did he just pick that, pick that out of the air? No. We've seen angels as part of God's provision for, for Abraham in chapter 16, 19, uh, 21, 22. This is a pattern. <laughs> angels keep showing up and helping things. He just presumes there's going to be an angel involved in this too. That's how confident he is. So uh, the servant makes preparation, he gathers provisions, and off he goes. And he probably has lots of time to think and pray. It's about a 400-mile journey that even on camelback will take about a month. And so he prays. He 
gets there. He's asking God to reveal Isaac's wife in a very specific way. It'll be pretty unmistakable. But it's not some bizarre off-the-wall sign, right? It's not, uh, oh God, let her be the one with blue hair and six toes on her left foot. You know, it's not that. It's, it's somewhat ordinary and related to what's going to be required. It's a, it's a character test. Is she hospitable? Will she be kind to a weary traveler? Is she strong and industrious, right? She'll be there fetching water for her family. She's going to have to little have a little grit if she's going to make this huge long journey back. Be willing to leave her family. Go with a stranger. So the servant is praying all of this to God, asking for him to do it, like literally. Verse 12 says something about, you know, grant me success. Literally, make it happen in front of me. I think I'm going to start praying like that. God, make it happen in front of me. And verse 15 tells us, he's not even done praying. He hasn't even gotten all the words out of his mouth. And up walks Rebecca. Have have you ever had a prayer answered before the amen? Now, it's not always like that. But here... One of the commentators said, it's as if God is just behind the curtain, ready to push Rebecca on stage right on cue. Ta-da! Here she is! Well, the servant doesn't yet know, but we know, right? We know, because Rebecca's already been mentioned in a genealogy back in chapter 22, if you remember. But the servant's still very much in suspense. And so here goes. Can I have a drink? Sure. Gulp, gulp, gulp. Which probably seemed like an eternity to him. Will she say it? Will she? Will she? She said it. Yes, she said it. I'll water your camels too. And she quickly springs into action in in a way that's really reminiscent of Abraham, isn't it? Think about uh, back in chapter 18 and these these mysterious guests arrive and Abraham springs into action. Let's make a meal. Let's entertain. Let's be good hosts to them. And he scurries around just like she is now quickly springing into action, watering ten camels. So I quickly Googled, how much does a camel drink? (laughs) If they're thirsty, which I think is when camels drink, right? And they do not, Google told me, they do not store water in their humps. But when a camel is thirsty, it can drink up to 30 gallons at a time. All right, so let's do some math. I gave you an equation last week, an inequality. Let's do some more math. Um, 10 camels, 30 gallons, the jar on her shoulder, average size jar held about three gallons. That's potentially a hundred trips 
from well to trough. Dang. Now that definitely took a small eternity to complete. And verse 21 tells us what's happening. The servant's watching. He gazed and he wondered. Because this is a huge piece of the puzzle right here, what she's doing. But it's not the whole thing. He still needs to know who she is. Because see, she's got to be part of Abraham's kin. So verse 24, who are you? Well, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Bingo. We've got a winner. Not just kin, close kin, but not too close. Uh, Apparently, if you do the family tree right, this is the grandniece of Abraham. Close cousin to Isaac. Do you see what has happened? It wasn't just a quick answer to prayer. I mean, lightning fast. Think about this, too. Rebecca had to leave home, headed toward the well, before the prayer was even started, much less finished. So we've got this quick answer, but it is a quick, over-the-top answer. right? It's hard to think of a, of a better possible answer to the prayer that was prayed. The servant didn't end up just in the right neck of the woods. <laughs> He didn't end up with just any old relative. He ended up exactly where he did, in the right spot to find a close relative of Abraham's. It's like God was eager to show his faithfulness in this. Eager to show how trustworthy he is, what a good provider he is. Now, sometimes I'm sure for very good reasons, maybe known only to him. Sometimes he makes us sweat it out. Right, And we don't get the super fast answer before we say amen. But not here. Here it is. Bam. Look how faithful I am. Look at this. Look how I'm still moving things along with this covenant. Bit by bit, step by step, I'm doing it. Look at it. Promise by promise. Maybe that's why Moses devoted so much real estate to this story. Because it is so good at showing God's faithfulness and his never giving up steadfast love. See, that's something the first recipients of Genesis needed to be reminded about again and again and again. And encouraged about. See, their very existence as a people was testament to God's faithfulness. And their continued existence was always on the brink of of not existing. They were so close to being snuffed out so many times. And they needed frequent reminders because sometimes they remained full of faith. But many times they doubted. And so what did they need to do? What was Moses trying to help them do? Look back. Look back and consider 
Remember, was he faithful here? Was he faithful here? Was he faithful here? Then what do you think is going to happen now? And what do you think is going to happen down the road? That's what Abraham was doing in verse 7. He's looking back. He's remembering. And he was thinking logically about things. If God has gone to all this trouble in the past, if he's shown up so many times, it wouldn't make much sense for him to give up now. He's got too much invested. Friends, that's the same thing that we need to do. And maybe it's regarding the church, right? At any of those different levels that I mentioned. This church, right? The the, the culture broadly that we find ourselves in. Or or how you see the the, the fruit and the life of the church bearing itself in your life and in your family's life. Or, Or maybe it's something different. Maybe you feel on the ropes in some other way. Maybe you're facing some other great difficulty or question. But the solution is the same. Look back. Has he been faithful? Has he provided? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And the place where you've got to start is with the biggest possible thing you can look back on. Did he meet you in your greatest and most most difficult need? Your eternal need. When you were a rebel and an enemy, justly deserving his displeasure and wrath, did he send his only son? Did he offer him up as a lamb without blemish, To die the death that you should have died. If he was faithful to do that. It doesn't make any sense at all that he will fail to be faithful. In the much smaller things that you face now. There's there's too much water under the bridge. (laughs) He'll be faithful And when we do that, when we connect all those dots from God's past faithfulness all the way to the present and into the future, will we have the same response as the servant? When he sees her water all those camels, and when she tells him who her family is, what does he do? Verse 26. He bowed his head and he worshipped. I just can't even believe it. It it is too good to be true. He's done it again. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness. Y'all, that's the goal. That's the point, is to get us to those places of worship. It's not even about just meeting all those needs, right? Our, Our salvation is the same way. Our salvation, wonderful as it is, is not the point. His glory is the point. Our worshipful response to what he has done is the point. How great and how worthy he is. Let's pray. Oh God, would you lead us to places this morning 
of deep worship and ascribing to you the glory that is due your name. Because you have been faithful. God, grant us the grace to look back and connect the dots. We're prone to forget. We're prone to take for granted. Oh, Lord, that is that is sin. And we want to confess that to you. Oh, give us long memories, oh God, that when we look back, we see example after example after example of how you've been faithful. Of how you've met us at every turn and every need. You've never once failed us. So why should we question you now? God, help us to connect the dots. Help us trust you today with whatever it is that's causing us to lose sleep, fret, worry, be anxious. And then help us to worship you in response. To you alone be glory, O God. To you alone. Amen.